I am Laura McCowan. And I am Holly Whitaker. And this is Home Podcast. And so we would begin. Hey. Hi. I just had a little look. Oh god, it sounds like you're crying. No, I had a look robber. Um or actually oh, elegant. I know. No, it was it was like an air bubble. I didn't belch. Um Will a clobber come out like a flower? It does. It's pink. It's a pink cloud. <laughs> <laughs> it's very dainty. Oh, so sweet. Yeah. So, how are so, you? Hi, I'm wonderful. Yeah? Wonderful. yeah I'm doing great. You just got back from Maine. Just got back from Maine uh, again and spent time... I made my own fire and kept it going for hours and uh, read and I'm reading Walk in the Woods, which is hilarious and fabulous. And yeah, yeah. it was a great weekend. You've had like three pictures with that book. Um, I'm doing so good. I am uh, I am in the middle of um, pulling together a lot of stuff right now. And also I... I want to I want to say it just because I want to see where it's at by the time this thing actually airs. One of my third date with the guy last night in five days, and um, and it's going good. And so, by the time this airs in two days, wait, this doesn't air. Oh my god, this is Anne. Oh oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> totally possible for things. To uh, okay, well, but it still it could implode. I don't know. And this will also be a good test to see if the guy actually listens to my podcast. Who knows? Right. Hey guy. Um, hey guy. Anyway, so yeah. So no, I'm doing good. I'm feeling like I'm feeling um I'm feeling like I'm at one of the more scarier points in my life. Mm-hmm. And um and I was explaining this, I don't know, to somebody, but I was like, Oh no, I was writing my newsletter and I was like, There is some sort of grounding in my groundlessness. Um, there's something that I'm, I should be freaking out. I am not freaking out. So that's how I am. I should be freaking out. I'm not freaking out. I had a good date, did a lot of yoga this weekend and you know, that's it. It's yeah. You don't know how to do this, but something inside you does. Oh gosh. I did yesterday have one moment where I screamed fuck and almost punched my fist through a wall and then went outside and I stood in the sun and then I came back in and I dropped on the floor and I had my head buried into the ground and I was like hands up and this is how you this is how normal this is now my mom was just like stepping over me and walking around me and continuing on in her chores like okay this is what she does um that is the greatest it was so funny I was like sitting there in my mind I'm like talking I'm like I understand and I get it just please be like I'm like saying my prayers and like sobbing and she's literally like Like, checking the mail and like walking around to me and then she's like do you want turkey for lunch I mean it was just so yeah that's that's my life (laughs) that's really great (laughs) it was was surreal (sighs) okay so you so well so we're going to inter we're going to introduce our episode episode which I which we recorded yes a few weeks ago it was one of like the highlights of my life and uh just surreal I we are we are introducing Anne Dowsett Johnston she is the author of Drink the Intimate Relationship Between Women and Alcohol Uh, her book has meant I mean it it really did change me it changed my thinking it 
shifted my experience of getting sober. And I read it when I was still in and out struggling uh, between wanting to get sober and not and trying and not. And she, the book is a beautiful um, combination of a memoir and her own experience of getting sober, not just getting sober, but her own experience of her relationship with alcohol and um, all the aspects of that, including family and romantic relationships and career and uh, motherhood and a research book. I mean, it's heavily researched. She has done, she has a really beautiful body of work around drinking and women and the relationship uh, between those things. So I am thrilled. This, I still think about, you know, a few weeks later, think about our conversation and get chills. It was just really special to talk to her. I agree. I think it was, it was amazing. And it was also, um, I mean, again, she's, she, I didn't read her book um, until just this summer. I had known about it, but it was on my, you know, it was un, un, under the stack. And um, for me, it was just one of those things. It was such a, well, it was such a beautifully articulated experience of one's own struggle, but it was also such a wealth of information. She really talked to a yeah. lot of different people and she really pulled together and tied together this thing that's been uh, you know, like was the suspicion of mine in the beginning and also the thing that's really fed my work, which is um, the normalization of, of, of alcohol abuse and the normalization of binge drinking and the trajectory that women are on is yeah. terrifying and, um, and a, 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 an epidemic and, and something that needs attention and something that needs to change. And she's, for me, I not only love her story and her writing and, and her articulation of it, but I really am so deeply moved by the body of work she's pulled together and the trends, the way that she's been able to capture the trends, pull it together and say, this yeah. is what's going on. This is what needs to be fixed. I love how she says that um, and, and that this is for you and 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 the special shame that mothers face. Yeah. And then also the further, I love this part because no one talks about this, the special shame that women that are pregnant who abuse still. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there is like a special hell reserved for them. And so yeah. she's just wonder, I mean, she's just, uh, she's, she's, powerful and this is anyway we'll, we'll get and to also it. and also the nicest woman oh my god right she's just so so great to talk to really yeah. kind and articulate and yeah we are we're thrilled so without further ado right here we without are without further ado i do i do hey ann are you there I'm here. <laughs> Hi. So everyone, so I'm in Boston today and you two are both in California, right? Well, I know Holly is. And Anne, are you? I'm in, I'm in California. Yes. Oh, what, right. what part of California? I'm in Palm Desert. What about oh, you, Holly? Uh, I'm in Fresno. I'm in, I am in the Central Valley of California. Wonderful. Yeah. Are you living there or are you just on vacation? No, I'm just, uh, I come down here a couple of times a year just for, um, to the place to write and relax. Nice. Very nice. What's the weather mm-hmm. like there right now? Warm? Um, it's cooler than normal, but for me as a Canadian, it's lovely. Nice. <laughs> really right. lovely. So we are thrilled to do this. And, and one of the things, um, I'll just tee it off by saying we, Holly and I have um, 
although we are very good friends, we have a lot of differences in how, especially in, um, when it comes to our paths in sobriety, you know, I went kind of the AA route. She did not. Um, I have, you know, and we both read voraciously and we talk about the books that we love constantly. Um, but we often do not like the same books and your book was one that we both just like fell on the, on the ground and, you know, died, just loved it. And, but for very different reasons. And we thought that that was funny, you know, because we, we initially talked and said, you know, I said, have you read this book? And then I think you either had read it or you were just starting. Well, to I read was it. reading, I was reading, um, her best kept secret because I was, cause for me, one of my biggest pulls is the, the, I mean, the, the reason that I started off doing this work was really because I thought that there was a trend in women, um, women and drinking. And I was very drawn to Gabrielle Glazer's work because she had so much statistics or she had so many statistics uh, compiled in that book about women and their relationship with alcohol. And then you said, you've got to check this out then. And right, so then right. you sent me Anne's book and I was just, I mean, you know, drooling over, um, it was an excerpt, I believe at first. So, so yeah. Yeah. And then, so, so the way that we're going to approach doing this, this talk is, is I, cause we have very different questions. You know, the parts I love the, I adore the writing. I think you're an amazing writer. I love the personal part of your story. I thought that, you know, you uncovered a lot, certainly with the, you know, women and drinking and that relationship. And I, and I did enjoy that part, but what I really loved was the writing and, you know, you talking about your relationship and how you recovered yourself through sobriety. And, you know, the, the first part of the book, um, where you describe addiction as, you know, metaphor of this sort of man in the room or your lover was just incredible. And so, I have questions that are more, you know, about that. And then Holly has very different questions. So rather than go back and forth, we're going to kind of do Laura's questions and then Holly's questions <laughs> after. Um, so, so I'll just start. I, uh, I was listening to your Ted talk and I've listened to it a couple of times and you talked about, and this is something I loved in the book too, but you went into it in a little bit more depth in the Ted talk about how, you know, when you had, um, broken up with your, the relationship that you've had for 14 years and you had felt like you lost everything in in sobriety and your son had you take out a piece of paper and write, you know, the wins and the losses. I'm wondering if you can retell that story a little bit here, um, with us, because I feel like it's just so profound. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's one of my favorite parts of, of, of my book. Um, sometimes I can read it without crying and sometimes I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, my son was very key in getting me to stop drinking. He certainly confronted me and unlike me with my own mother, um, made it very clear that we wouldn't have a relationship if I kept drinking. Mm-hmm. So 18 months into my sobriety, when I was, um, really wobbly because I wasn't working. I had had a huge career. I was not sure what would come next uh, with with no warning. Um, my partner, my sweetheart of 14 years, broke up with me on the phone on a Monday morning. Yeah. And it happened that um, it totally blindsided me, to say the least. 
and I had a very hard time coming to terms with it. Yeah. And, and several um, weeks later, I, in, in full depression, I phoned my son who was then living in Brooklyn and said, I have lost everything in sobriety. This has been a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's a very thoughtful guy. And he would have been in his late twenties at this point. And okay, he, I was going to ask, yeah, he was, he was a man. <laughs> at that point. He was a man. He was a man at this point. And, um, his name is Nicholas and he has a very, um, a very astute mind, a very, um, he's very able at counseling others, studying to be a psychotherapist now, but at that point was an artist. And he said, um, mom, please go and get a piece of paper. And he said, draw a line down the middle. And he said, on one side, I want you to write gains and on the other side, losses. And I want you to go over what you lost and have gained in sobriety. Mm -hmm. And on the losses side, I wrote Jake's name. That was my partner. And I wrote Jake's name. And he said, it's true, mom, you lost a really great guy. Or he was a great guy, but he wasn't great to you in the end. Yeah. And then on the other side, he, he said, write what you've gained. And he took me really carefully. It was really difficult. He took me really carefully through the relationships with my mother, my yeah. sister, my best friends, all which had improved immeasurably. Um, and then he got to himself. And he talked about my writing and the fact that my writing had Returned, but most of all, he talked about the fact that I had become a great mother and that I had supported him in going to art school, which wasn't something that happened in my family. That I had um, supported him in many other ways and that I had been a great mother. And when we were finished, I was on the second half of uh, on on the flip side of the piece of paper. There were so many gains, and it was so strong that. he had me in tears and, and he had, he had um, persuaded me that indeed it was obviously a gain of, of inordinate proportions. Um, And at that time I was just getting back into writing a series of 14 part series in the Toronto star, which is Canada's biggest newspaper on women and alcohol and was beginning to uncover what would be um, the basis for my book drink? So okay, yeah, I was wondering where, when the in the chronology of things where that was. So yeah, so that's amazing. I mean, I think because I I relate to it so much. I'm just over a year sober, and I think um, you know, so that helped you kind of re- you know put things into perspective. And then you know, how do you find that you can still can still get there. You know, I I guess I'm looking for, you know, how you look at that now. And, you know, we get so many listeners and people that come to us feeling that way. And, you know, how, how do you relate to that sort of thing now? Or has it shifted your perspective sort of indefinitely? Not specifically the relationship, but just, you know, the, the, the gains and the, and the, and the losses. Like, how do you relate to the losses? Well, you know, they say that they say that you're you change cellularly, you know, totally every seven years. And I'm seven years sober now. Yeah. And I think that we, you know, they also say that the the you know proverbial day mm-hmm. that 
alcoholism or addiction is the only disease that you can have where, you know, your brain tells you you don't have it. And I, like others, um, not everyone, but many wrestle with the fact that I'm seven years sober. Maybe I could have a drink. Um, I, I find great support in my 12 step community and great support in what I call my serenity sisters, but also in my family, um, to just understand that it, it was not a pretty picture. And it's something that I, it's a, it's a journey that I'm on and I'm really keen to see what the next chapter will bring. And I'm not so sure the next chapter would be so pretty were I to relapse. So Right, right. I it has been it has been a struggle to um, come to terms with the new and mostly though I'm the most me I've ever been. I'm the happiest I've ever been. Writing writing drink was the happiest mm. um, professional experience that I've ever had, and I've had a great career. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of healing my relationships and being on a huge path of advocacy for recovery in Canada. I'm one of the directors of Faces and Voices of Recovery. I think that it's very, very important to um, keep putting one foot in front of the other and seeing what will unfold. Going backwards is, is not an option for me. Yeah. yeah. I have to, this, is a, this isn't something I was planning on asking, but just because it's so fitting. I wrote, a, I wrote something this morning about rejection being universal protection and that sometimes we, we, what we perceive as rejection, you know, from others or, or something being taken away from us is actually protecting us or, you know, so that we can do our work or so that we can, um, do find the the best thing the best plan you know in other words that there is um there is a reason for for the pain there's a reason for you know things being taken away from us in your case maybe the relationship do you kind of see it that way or am i just projecting onto you something that is no like do you think you would have do you think you would have written drink if you had stayed in the relationship no i don't i don't think i would have written drink i don't think um, so I, I think what you're asking is a profoundly important question. It's an existential question that I think we all wrestle with, which is what happens when one door closes and and what is possible and what opens. Um, all of us who are in the camp of, you know, being in in a situation where I was, my son was five when I um, left a marriage and I'm very, very close to his father. Um, who who could have predicted that 25 years later? Yeah. Um, we we I ha- we have a vibrant family. I have a very um, I guess unorthodox and eccentric life in that way. Um, it has been a real wrestle. I'm now in my early 60s. It's been a real wrestle to be single, and it's the very first time in my life I've been truly, truly single. Yeah. And to chart my path, I have, an, I have enormous freedom. Um, but I think heartache is, I mean, they say grief is, grief is the price for love. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I have certainly in sobriety lost um, my father to Korsakoff's, which is the most extreme form of alcoholism. Yeah. I lost my mother a year ago this month. Uh, I lost Jake. Um, there have been many, many losses and, and what we learn, I think in sobriety and recovery 
is we need to find our sea legs in coping and in finding ways to cope with what can be really challenging. Yeah. And that's the true test of our metal because, you know, I'm of the belief that I used alcohol as a coping mechanism. I used it to go to sleep, to stay awake, to relax, to reward for everything. And, and you know what we're really learning in this path of recovery is how to cope with what life, you know, gives us. So your question is a really profound one. Um, and, you know, life really is a, is a game of choices and it's somewhat like snakes and ladders sometimes. Yeah. And, and I really did have a very tough 18 months after that breakup. I had a very, very tough time. I was tested right to my core. Yep. And yet I didn't drink. So I think uh, we, we find, we find our ways of coping and we grow yeah. and we grow measurably and, and you're right. Drink would never have been written. I don't believe yeah, it and that. That's the, that's the piece that I sort of like makes my heart pound because I think it, although it's, it's tragic, it's so beautiful. Like you produce this work and now, you know, out of that. And how many times has that happened? Right. With, with books and with art and, you know, I don't know, there's something really promising to me about that. And I, yeah. um, so I love, I love hearing it. Um, even though it is, is, you know, been the price of pain. Um, so, so to, to kind of move on from that. So, so at what point you alluded to it a little bit, but what, at what point did you decide to write the book? And when did you, when did you start it? And when did you finish it? Like the chronology of, you know, in your recovery? Right. Um, so I started it in, I, I got sober in 2008. My sobriety date is November the 3rd. So in the end of that year, that year I went to rehab, stumbled a bit after rehab, and then my sobriety date, God willing, is November the 3rd. Mm-hmm. Um, so in um, 2012, I had finished my series on women and alcohol, which was a year part of a year-long fellowship, and I was wrestling in the early part of 2012 with what to do next. And, and believe me, the wrestle of deciding to write drink was much harder than writing it. Um, <laughs> once I decided to write it, it came out of me in 11 months. Wow! It was I wrote I wrote like a a train was racing. It was it was just a. I felt like I was on a speeding train yeah. and that train had to get it to its destination. So huh. I, I sold it um, at auction in June of 2012 yep. and um, delivered it in May of 2013. And it was published all around the world in September oh of that gosh. year. And it was way easier to write than it was to decide to write. Deciding to come out and to tell these stories on yourself is huge. And the strange thing is, since Drink has been published, I have even gone further with my story. And in the book I'm currently writing, will go further. Um, It was was really a matter of how brave did I want to be. My mom was still alive, so I I, um, was somewhat careful about... Um, some of the stories about her because her 
she was quite a, a you know, big screen alcoholic. Yeah, Much and she's a big part myself. of your story. I mean, I, I think of your mother as like the, the, the side story and drink, you know, it's right, it's front and center. Certainly. And very know. brave for her to agree to do that at 84. Yeah. Um, or in her early 80s, which she was. But um, I told a somewhat sanitized version of a really bad story. And I'm going to, I'm going to go further just as Mary Carr and a couple of her, her books has revisited the story of her very um, gothic mother. I will be doing the same in, in my next book, which is on gratitude. Oh, awesome. So I think that, you know, this, this um, as with all writing, um, and you know this, Laura, I, I come to terms with my existence in my life by writing through it. Yeah, right, right. So, so I have, I have one quick question on that. Yeah. Um, so, and so when you, how did that conversation with your mother go when you were, before you were writing that book? I mean, did you, did you let her, did you ask her permission? Did you let her know? I mean, did you have her proofread? How, how did that actually go down? Letting her know that she would be, um, you know, her story would be, be told as well. How was that? That's a great question. We, um, we had several conversations at the cottage. Um, where by I, she would congratulate me on my bravery to be writing the book. And I, and I would, I asked her permission and said, mom, if you think this is brave, then nothing would be braver than your agreeing as well to be in the book. Mm. I did not have her proofread. And, and that was a really painful part. I had many, many conversations with my siblings to talk about how far I would go with the stories, what stories were the most horrific for them. And when my mother began to read those stories in the book, she couldn't continue. And I feel really badly about that. Yeah. Um, because what I realized is when someone is as inebriated as she was in many of those occasions, she had no memory of yeah. doing the many, many things she had done. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it was a painful uh, thing. We, we di- she died with, you know, with me by her bedside and we were very much reconciled, but it was, it was a very painful chapter. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I could, I I could ask so many questions about that. I think it's, um, it's one of those things that I, I didn't even oddly, even though memoir is probably my favorite form of, uh, you know, or my favorite genre, I didn't consider that, you know, all those people are writing about real people, not just themselves. And, um, especially when it comes to something like this, that it takes uh, it takes a lot of bravery on all sides to be able to do that, or or you have to decide that you're really just not going to consider that. And I don't think that many writers actually do that. So, anyway, um, what what in your sobriety? Because you said you know, and this can be a quick answer; doesn't you don't have to go into detail. But I all you know, people always want to know. I always want to know what the turning point was for you when you actually you know put together when you're, you know, on November 3rd, what happened? And you said you went to rehab and then you stumbled a bit. So what was sort of the, the light switch for you or the flip, or did you quit? Like I did and not really think that that was maybe your last time drinking. You just started to put together time. I, um, I was in a situation where I had given up any notion of wanting to live. Mm. Um, I was having such difficulty piecing together more than two weeks, um, more than two weeks of sobriety, more than two weeks where I wouldn't reach for a drink. And I was getting 
my self-loathing was at an all-time high. And I was at an all-time low. And I got down on my knees and said, God, I don't want to live. And I told my ex-husband I didn't want to live. And um, I went to a new meeting and a woman reached out to me and asked if she could be my sponsor. And um, day by day by day, I put my life back together again. Yeah. So yeah. I believe there was grace involved in yeah. in my hitting bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, I, it's, there's so much power in hearing whatever those stories are, because in my experience, it's usually nothing, you know, profound that maybe hasn't happened a hundred other times, but it's just something, you know, something does happen. So, um, one more question. And then I think we want to get into Holly's, Holly's stuff. What, what's been the most surprising parts of being sober for you? What has been the, the biggest surprise or, you know, one or two of the biggest surprises? Um, number one is happiness. Mm-hmm. I really did think like many, many other people think that without champagne in my life and without um, the elegance of a beautiful glass of wine. And I think you really feel it in the, in the prologue of my book where I talk about yeah. the lone shark and the glamor of the drinking. Yeah. I saw I saw drinking as very glamorous, and I thought drinking as a very essential part of a sophisticated life. And um, I really didn't believe that I would laugh heartily, that I would have the kind of joy that I um, have, and the lack of depression. And mm-hmm. all of that has been an, a tremendous surprise. I sleep well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I uh, I, I know, um, right? <laughs> yes. There have been some bad surprises. Um, certainly, I have wrestled with um, food in a way that I didn't wrestle with when I was drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, food has become an issue. Shopping has, has become an issue for me. I've had to stare down. It's a little bit like that game whack-a-mole. Yeah. I've had to. Um, my addiction has popped up in other ways. And self-soothing, I guess you could call it. So that's very candid on my part. I... Um, so there, there have been many, many um, surprises, and and so far I have not um, figured out the dating piece, um, and that is and that is a sorrow for me. I need to figure that out. Um, I just don't know how you do it. I so I feel like I'm a stranger in a strange land. You know, a person who. I think it's all wrapped up together. I saw myself as, you know, a person who went out to restaurants a lot and yeah. drank fine wine and, yeah. and I had to kind of put together a new Anne. I know. Yeah. I know. It is, it is. I think um, <laughs> when we find someone who's figured that out, we're going yeah, like, to <laughs> broadcast it. I think it's the thing that, I don't know. I don't think it matters how old you are. I think, um, or how much you've dated or been, I mean, I've been married too. It's, it's a, it is a, um, one of the toughest parts is just decoupling alcohol with romantic, you know, relationships and how you do that. It's, it's, it's really tough, but, um, okay. So that I love, I love everything you said. I'm, um, I, I think we want to get to Holly's questions because I know she has many and that they're, 
you know, different. And I think this is a good lead in to it, Hall, if you want to take over. Yeah, yeah. And I think like one of the more interesting parts of this, and as Laura, you know, alluded to, we have very, very different attractions in this space. You know, Laura is, um, I write, but we were talking about this the other day and I, we said, you know, Laura is a writer who teaches and I am a teacher who writes. And so we both, appre- we both approach this from very different angles. And I think, I mean, what I loved your book and, and for its writing, I, as I was going through it, I, I had, um, there was such a resonance there because of the workaholism. Um, and like when you're talking about being at the cafe and having, you know, the same salad and the baguette and the three glasses, I, um, and taking your work with you and your work being your companion. Um, I don't know. There was just, there was, there was such a resonance in your story and, and I thought it was just so beautifully told, but the part that, um, that really grabbed me was, um, and I was, I have a, a part down that I'll talk about, but I, I read through your book with my, um, with my hand to my head, just because of, I would say, um, the urgency that I feel around the points that you bring up. And so for me, um, it's not just a beautiful story and a very well-told story, but it's also, um, it's such an important story for, for, for us and, and for, for women. And so the stuff I have to ask is so different than Laura. Um, so the first thing I, I'm really curious about is, so in your book, you say that alcohol is a carcinogen um, and the risk of drinking uh, far outweighs the protective factors. And I'm just curious if you think that there is such a thing as safe drinking. Um, and I also want to, I'm going to just ask two questions at once, because you also say that you feel like you burned your privilege to drink. And so I'm wondering how you, how it is, how it stands today, seven years sober, if you feel, if you still feel it's a privilege. Great question. I, I really believe there is such a thing as safe drinking. Um, And I think those who go about it in a really conscious way and by that, I mean, in Canada, for instance, lowest drinking guidelines, drinks are fewer a week. Um, I think that uh, we, we, if you're conscious, um, as we are with calories and other things, I think it's quite possible to drink in a, in a low-risk manner. But I really believe as a person who spent 30 years in journalism, more now, I really think that we have been remiss in highlighting the information that was is necessary, especially for female readers, um, about the negative consequences of drinking. 15%, that's one five percent of breast cancer cases are attributable to yeah. alcohol consumption. So we have to be conscious consumers of alcohol. I'm by no means a prohibitionist. Far from it. In fact, I've had more joy from alcohol than most people, and I understand the pleasures of alcohol in your life, and my family drinks around me, but I really don't think we're having an adult conversation about the public health issues. That um, arguably, and I, I argue this a lot in, in public at the podium, I think it, it is the one thing that's going really sideways for young women. Yeah. We go toe-to-toe in the workplace. We outnumber young men in post-secondary institutions in North America. We, uh, you know, are doing really fabulous work as females 
but it's the one thing that really undermines and is totally undermining women at the sort of college age. And I think um, onwards as well. The numbers, you know, the spiking we, we see around the world that men are flatlining or declining in terms of consumption and we are closing the gender gap. And there's something truly wrong about that. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. I think it holds. I mean, I do. I think it, I think it, especially because of the demographic that it's, that it's, that you're seeing the escalation and I think it holds us back. I think it really holds us back. Um, and people will say that it's it's just the same as other generations, and I argue it isn't. No, it's not. We did not have when I went to university. If you if you were to have too much to drink, you were not outed on Facebook the next day. Yeah. Um, young women have lost their lives um, because of shame and blame, and I understand that. And it's very high high profile cases in California, in Canada for sure. And this is just tragic. It's tragic what happens. And as we know, we have a whole feminizing of the pink, what I call the pinking of the market with mummy juice and girls night out oh, wine and skinny girl cocktails. And we are, we are the target market for big alcohol. And the more I talk about it, I mean, I'm part, I started something called the national round table on girls, women and alcohol in our country too to um, be an advocacy group for an understanding and appreciation of conversation about this subject. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I mean, and not only that, I think one of the bigger dangers in this, and you speak about this, is that it's, it's the normalization of it. And the normalization, you know, it kind of follows you from university and it follows you into the workplace. And the normalization of it is that, you know, I lived in San Francisco for the last, I mean, I, I lived in San Francisco through, um, through like the very end stages of my addiction before I stopped. And the normalization of it was that we drank every night and that it was, it was odd to not drink every night. And it was, and, um, and that, that was, that was the norm. And it was, it was weird. My girlfriends and I would sit around and we would think of things to do that didn't involve alcohol. And we would, we would be scratching our heads looking for it because alcohol is so pervasive in everything that we do. And so I think one of the bigger dangers of it as well is that it's just, it's not the same as all generations because it's completely normal for women to drink a couple of drinks a night, every single night of the week and, and somewhat abnormal, especially in bigger cities to not. Mm-hmm. So You're right. You're absolutely right. And I met with a, an attorney from Columbus, Ohio, you know, over a social gathering female last week who said, you know, her, her very high performing friends are now really interested in whiskeys and bourbons and, and spirits. Yeah. And, and that is, that sort of signifies their going toe to toe with men, um, having earned their stripes in, in their professions. And it's just dangerous. Yeah. It's dangerous. If you're having two drinks a night, you're well over the 10 drinks a week. Yeah. And well, not only that, also, I mean, it's like the, you know, for me, it was a badge of honor that I drank whiskey. It was a badge of honor that I drank bourbon and that I knew my bourbons. And I also, and that I could actually, um, you know, not, I could make it through the night and actually keep pace with, um, you know, like one of my, one of my best friends was a guy that weighed like 215 pounds and I would drink the same amount as him in a night. And I thought that that was, there was no shame in that for me. That was actually I thought, you know, that I could, I could handle it, that that was some sort of mark of honor. And so, um, yeah, it is, it's, I think it's a much different culture. It's a fascinating juncture that we're at and it's, and it's not, 
I mean, we haven't even gotten into the issue of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, and the fact that the largest spike is for women between 24 and 34, giving birth to 60% of, of babies. This is this is dangerous. We're in a really dangerous way um, situation. No one really knows when it's going to slow down. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Okay, so a while ago, I wrote about a time that I had told a friend that I thought everyone should stop drinking. Um, and this was something, this was one of my closer friends, and we were actually out. I was having like a mocktail, and he was having a glass of wine. And I was clear, like, I'm not a prohibitionist. I mean, I personally believe in legalization and decriminalization, which is a whole other topic. But I'm not a prohibitionist either. But I do have a very strong sense that I think everyone should should not drink the same as I feel that everyone should not smoke cigarettes. And so for a really long time, I had this, I came to that conclusion really early on. That was actually one of the impetus for me. That was what made it easier for me to stop drinking is because I was turned off by it. Um, but for a really long time, I held on to this opinion and I was very secreted with this opinion because I was terrified that everyone would look at me and hear me saying this and say, well, that's because you can't anymore. So now you want to ruin all of our fun. And so I wonder for you, you I mean, taking the position that you've taken and being outspoken on all of the dangers of alcohol, I wonder if that hits you or if that resonates. If you ever feel like um, you hold back your opinion or that you feel that you temper it because you don't want to be seen as a girl who can't. So, um, so she thinks everyone else shouldn't, or if that doesn't affect you. It's a fine line, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, you know, when I do policy work, so we did have our national roundtable on girls, women, and alcohol, um, which is a big national event um, a week ago. And I was at the podium thinking how much stronger my voice would be and my um, ability to persuade if I didn't um, preface it with the fact that I was sober. So yeah. to answer your question, I don't have that feeling that people should not drink. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't share that view and I don't, I don't muzzle that view, yeah. but I am aware that um, when people listen to me, they're conscious that I am sober and have to be sober and have been an alcoholic and am an alcoholic and therefore maybe what I'm saying uh, is a little suspect. Yeah. So, so that part's hard. Yeah. Um, I just see, you know, in Canada, 80% of people 15 and over drink. That's a really high proportion. It's higher, higher than in your country. And it isn't um, the alcoholic that's the problem. It's, it's, you know, because classically we're up to 4% of the population and not more. It's it's the normalized binge drinking of the person who doesn't have a drink, you know, five nights a week and then goes crazy on Saturday. And and that, I think, you know, is known as the French paradox. And it's the thing that the public has a hard time wrestling with because the alcohol industry has really persuaded us that it is the rare, irresponsible person who, you know, is sitting on a park bench swigging from a brown paper bag or is the drunk driver, right. who, by the way, increasingly tends to be female. Right. But, but um, we have per persuaded that, you know, well, it's not me. It's, it's just that one friend of mine or it's that, yep. that crazy person over there. 
and that's just not true. It is, it is the normalization on, on the part of many, many, many people of riskier binge drinking that is, is really getting our culture into trouble. Well, and it's that, I mean, and that's like one of the biggest disservices to it, right, is that idea that you have to be stumbling drunk and lose everything in order to actually look at it. And that we think it's like, it's really just, it's only when it's a problem that it's a problem without actually expanding the spectrum to take into account how many people actually struggle with this at much lower intervals. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think you're right. Um, one question I had. So you talked about something, this is just more on the women's issue um, side of things. You, I know you had a conversation with Gloria Steinem in which she dismissed drinking as a woman's issue, um, which I thought personally was appalling. Um, I, can you go into explaining a little bit more about what the conversation was? And then um, also just explain from your point of view why you think this is, why you think this is a woman's issue? Well, I approached her at a, at a birthday party for Ms. Magazine mm -hmm. and um, it's become quite a controversial conversation because some people, close people around her, I think feel um, very protective about the fact that I've repeated this conversation, but I do feel strongly about it that, you know, she has said that, that food or she did say to me, food is a woman's issue. I don't believe that this is, a women's issue and this was um, before my book was written so this you know was obviously a conversation that I thought was quite interesting and I wanted to make sure I got it right so about half an hour after our first conversation which was very brief I reapproached her and said I know you really care about women in the developing world um, I don't know if you're aware that big alcohol is really targeting women in the developing world. Don't you think this is a woman's issue? And she said, maybe from that point of view, but still not really. Um, and so, you know, I do give some credit to um, the book, My Best Kept Secret and my book and others with speaking about something that was taboo it was yeah. was definitely a story under the radar yeah and i think that what people when i first pitched a, a series on women in alcohol in 2010 people called it an under the radar story and many people said you must be talking about indigenous women you can't be talking about professional white um well-educated women that has been That's hard so for people to appreciate now I think we, now we, we accept it, um, but what we're not well educated on the fact is it's not body size. It's, it's partly body size, but it's mostly the fact that democratically we're equal, but metabolically and hormonally we are really built differently than men when it comes to absorbing alcohol. So we are, are lacking an enzyme in our stomachs, at, um, which is key in processing alcohol. We are, um, we become addicted much faster. We, um, both men and women develop cognitive issues, women way faster, way faster on heart disease. It is just a huge, huge, um, physical problem for women. And, that hasn't been well publicized. That isn't well understood. People tend to say, well, I'm five foot three and he's six feet tall. And yes, it's a factor, but it's not the major factor. And okay. 
so understanding the physiology of why this is a dangerous substance for us, much beyond the fact that we're bearers of children, but just for our own health, we know that it's connected to 200 plus cancers and diseases, including throat cancer and stomach cancer and many, many illnesses that you wouldn't wish on your best friend or your worst enemy. And that breast cancer connection, um, the 15% is very, very important for people who have breast cancer in their family. And it was estimated a year ago that only 4% of North American women had even heard this fact. It's pretty new information. It's only a few years old. Yeah. As is the information that when your doctor tells you a glass of red wine um, a day is good for your health, that was poo- that was totally um, poo-pooed in the January uh, 2014 issue of Addiction, yeah. where it was shown that a glass of red wine a day is good, yes, for um, a subset of males who are, tend to be in their 40s and are couch potatoes. Um, it doesn't relate to women. Right. So, so again, back to the media, I think we've done a great job of, of talking about the benefits of drinking. Um, and you can see why around an editorial desk that looks interesting. We have not done very much on the, on the downside of drinking. And, you know, you don't have to be too cynical to appreciate the fact that alcohol companies are good advertisers and why would you advertise bad news about the alcohol industry right right and then going back to the women's issue though don't you also agree that it's it's not only a woman's issue just because of the physiological but also because i mean i know for me a lot of it had to do with having to um kind of you know modernly we have to be everything and do everything. And that that's an almost impossible task. Just not even just, I mean, the, the perfectionist aspect of it, but also women are, um, you know, like you said, it helped you. It was, it was like your steroid. I mean, it was what you used to sleep. It was what you used when you came home from work. It was what you used to relax. It was what you used to pep up. It's what women use it, on some way. It's, it's, you know, it's a drug that we use to manage lives that are, I think, increasingly impossible because of, um, I mean, because of, uh, things like uh, Gloria Steinem's work, right? Because of because of our liberation, or because of of, of where we've come, and this, and you know, in our equality, don't you see it also as as an outgrowth of that? Yes, absolutely. I think that's maybe the most profound thing that I hope people will take away from my book yeah. is that it is very easy as a working mother, especially, to zoom in from a hard day at work stand at the chopping board with your vegetables and uh, preparing a meal and knowing you have work and overseeing homework ahead of you and pour yourself a glass of wine to decompress. It's the fastest decompression tool. A friend of mine said, I don't have time to go to yoga at that point. And so it makes me feel sophisticated and great. And for me, the, the migration from one glass of wine to two was big and then two to three was enormous. And then three to four, I knew I was, I was pooched. Yeah. I was in trouble. Yeah. More, more, I think, uh, I've heard from more women, you know, my drinking really turned when I became a mother because of all those stresses, I think, um, played into it. And, um, I've heard from more women get sort of sidelined by that because, it's unexpected or they didn't have that behavior before or they, you know, thought it was, you know, they're knowingly drinking a glass of wine. And then, 
you know, not understanding that it's a progressive thing, find themselves a year or two or three years later, just confounded by it, you know, and, and wondering what happened. And I think, um, this conversation, this particular one is very important to me. And I think it's one that we are, we are totally not having, you know, with, it is, I would say among the cohorts of women, uh, the groups of women that I hang out with, telling my mommy friends that I wasn't drinking anymore was the heart was the hardest. Yeah. You know, it was the, it felt like the biggest loss for two reasons. One, I didn't, you know, I, hanging out with your kids is exhausting, right? And, and being a mother, has, it can be really exhausting. And so doing those activities and, do, and, and having that time without the wine was the last piece of the thread that I didn't want to let go. And it was also, um, it, that was where I appeared to be most together. And so I think it was also an element of it just being confusing for people because I, that's not where I got blackout drunk. You know, that's just where I had some wine and was just like everybody else. And then I would go off and go home and drink more or whatever. But I think that's a, it's, that is the, uh, for me, it's like touching the third rail when you go into that subject. It's really, really scary for women and mothers. Um, so I, just, yeah. I agree. I agree. And, and my book club was probably the group that I had, you yeah. know, the hardest. And I had some people say, I think you're faking it. I don't think you're really an alcoholic because uh, I would yeah. always drink what other people drink at my book club. Try and buy a birthday card right now for a woman. And I'm sure you've all had this experience yeah. that doesn't make reference to wine o'clock or, know. you know, some kind of drinking um, uh, image or uh, metaphor, and it's remarkable. Yeah. And we are being told by every every corner of this culture that you're a woman, you might as well drink. You're yeah. a woman, you must be drinking. Yeah. And uh, I've now started a collection because I find it fascinating and I use it in my speeches. And it just is is the fact it's it's what has happened in our generation yeah yeah there was that one what i was i was in um i was in italy and one of a woman that i was traveling with showed me this thing on facebook and it was a it was she was laughing and and i didn't drink you know i didn't drink and it was a poster it was a sign of a um poster board that said uh wine is for women what duct tape is for men it fixes everything and i mean there's just and it's just part of it's part of our culture i mean we laugh at that stuff and it's uh it's it's accepted until you know until it becomes a problem um anyway great poster though i would love a copy of that one (laughs) oh i'll send it to you i have it yeah no Um, i i would i would love that but you're you're so right i've had people say they went away for women's weekend and brought my book and said somebody has to read this it's terrific and each and every other woman has said I don't want anything to spoil my drinking I can't read that book I know I know well it was funny in this case because I usually I was at this was really early on in my sobriety not me it was like maybe a year and a half into it but I didn't um 
I usually, I had seen that, that type of humor time and again, and um, I bit my tongue. I just did. It was just never worth going into the conversation. But in this case, I was annoyed with it. And I said, um, and I said something to her along the lines of like, do you, are you completely comfortable with your drinking? Do you think that's funny? And she wasn't like, she wasn't, she maybe had a glass of wine a night or two, I don't know. But she actually, we launched into a conversation after this and she was like, yeah, actually it does scare the shit out of me. And so here is like an example. She was a woman that didn't drink, um, you know, or meet any sort of like alcoholic guidelines. She was drinking a glass or two um, after work every night. But when, you know, we got past the humor and we had an honest conversation about it and I have to commend her for actually having the honest conversation about it. I mean, for the rest of the day, she was talking to me about it, but it's true. I mean, it's something that we don't look at, right? We don't look at it and it's such a social norm. I mean, it's a relief. It's a relief. One of my friends one time came over to my house and said she was going through an alcoholic period and I was relieved and I was like, oh, okay, you're not the only person that thinks that we can go through periods like this and we, you know, and we drank. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, yeah, I'll send that to you though, Anne. Thank you. So last question that I have, um, hold on. I have so many, I, by the way, I'm looking at a list of like 20 questions that I have for you. So I'm trying to pare it down. Um, okay, this, this is, is fun. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Um, it's like a dream. Okay. Um, so this is what I'm really curious about. So you've mentioned a few times, I think in your book, you definitely mentioned it in your Ted talk and in other, and other interviews, um, about never getting hired again for outing your battle with addiction. And very similar right. to you, like in, in February, 2014, I had just quit my job and I outed myself. I posted a really long blog post. I had an anonymous blog at the time and I posted it to my Facebook page. It got posted to my LinkedIn page. Um, and it was a, it was you know, it basically went into what it looked like, which was really, you know, how much I was drinking. And I, I was drinking about two to three bottles and it went into talking about my bulimia and all sorts of things. And when I posted it, I was looking for jobs and I crossed the list. I mean, I stopped looking for jobs. I was a, a director of revenue cycle management at that time. And I, I just gave up my search looking for other jobs and almost resigned to the fact that I would be working in the addiction space. And so when you say that, I'm so surprised because when I, you've, when you, when you talk about it, I'm, for me, when I think of you, I think, well, her vocation is clearly in, in, you know, this is her vocation. This is where I think she, you know, is meant to be because you've done so much in this space. And I'm wondering if you, if that's even a consideration that you'll never be hired again, or, or, I mean, do you believe like I do that you were you're meant to be right here and that this is your, this is your job. Oh, it's, it, it what a fabulous question. And again, we, we, um, I was just talking about this yesterday. I, um, have gone through periods of feeling that I had to support my son, um, through what has been a, a remarkable journey in finding, you know, the right vocation for himself yeah. And therefore, um, pay for help, pay for some degrees, et cetera, et cetera. So I did take a job a year ago. I did take a job um, to work as CEO of a foundation for a facility that, that um, looks after young uh, adolescents with addiction and mental health issues. And I lasted for only one year. 
um, realizing that where I'm meant to be is exactly where I am, just as you say. I'm supposed to be writing. I'm supposed to be um, finding my next book and working hard on not only the next book, but the book after. So um, sobriety has given me that. It's given me the real me. And sometimes it's less lucrative than my former um, life, for sure. Um, But I'm meant to be where I am. So um, I guess I I was flattered to be hired again (laughs) uh, because it had been a question mark in my mind whether I was hireable. But um, I am supposed to be writing. I am supposed to be a writer. It's a, it's tough as you know, to show up to the empty page every day. Mm. It's um, I'm wrestling with it right now. It is hard. Um, In many ways, it's much easier to go to uh, an office uh, job, but on the other hand, um, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't it. I found that I couldn't, um, no, you know, no harm intended, but I couldn't shrink myself back into uh, my former self. Yeah. And I had evolved into something quite different. And I'm on a path. And this weekend, this coming weekend, I'll be going down to the United States to work on a proposal for the book that comes after the one I'm working on now. So uh, I'm on, uh, on a path that is that is that is clear. So Great question. I think, you know, I've been giving a lot of speeches about what it means to be an employer who recognizes that they have a star employee who is a workaholic who has slipped into addiction. How do you shepherd that person out of the office, take care of them, and shepherd them back in to a stigma-free environment? Because I think... That's the thing that we all wish for the world right now is that recovery is um, respected, that addiction is seen to be um, what it is, which is a a chronic relapsing brain disease, Um, but that many of us live good lives in sobriety and are in sturdy sobriety, pay our taxes, love our families, work hard, etc. So we need to open the conversation about what it means to be in recovery what it means to be be in this world and that we all share. And we haven't really been having that conversation either. Well, it's so interesting too, because it's such a costly thing to employers. I mean, it costs in the United States alone, it's a $225 billion a year that alcohol costs us. And I think like some 70% of that is due to workplace, like lost workplace productivity. And there is, you know, and not only that, the employers are the ones that are in America are the ones that are paying for the insurance. And so they're literally, and, and we don't go to treat this type of stuff. We go to treat the things that actually come after it, which are the cancers that you mentioned, or, you know, God forbid, a liver transplant or, you know, the stuff that's covered by insurance is far more expensive than any sort of proactive treatment. And it comes out of the employer's pockets because they are the ones that by and large pay for the insurance. So it is, it's, it's a really important point and something close to my heart. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, it's a huge subject. And uh, I hope in the next five years, we'll see some, some very different attitudes towards the whole issue. Yeah, I feel like we will. I feel like we're on the, I feel like things are changing and I don't know if that's just because I am changing and my, you know, my world has changed so much that I just sense that it is, but 
Holly and I both went to the Unite to Face Addiction conference in DC in December and met up with, you know, a a couple dozen people that we hadn't known even a year prior because we weren't all talking about this openly, you know? Yeah. And there are a lot of voices out there now openly. I mean, I, and I work in a, you know, I go to a job every day. I work in PR. And so you can imagine me coming out as a as a sober alcoholic is, was a, you know, is, is, was a big deal as well. And, um, and I, I am so glad that I did. I'm so proud that I did. And, you know, I, I, there's probably a naivety about it because, which is, which has served me because I didn't think through all the potential things that could happen. I just knew I was saving my life and that's what I needed to do. And, um, and I think your book and so many other voices that are out there right now are, are changing it. I think, I think they're really changing it. So it was so, I think we're, I think we're wrapping up. I know we've, we've come to the hour and I just am like pinching myself this whole time. It's been so wonderful to have you on and. Well, I have one more question. I do have one more question before. I know, I'm sorry. So, okay. So for me, the main thing is you put so much information together. And when I read through your, when I read your book, my adrenaline pumps, and it really calls on this part of me that wants to do something to fix it. And we have a lot of listeners that are, that are in that space. We, Laura and I are part of a community that, you know, for the most part are vocal about, about their addiction. Um, to, to a large degree, larger than, than we've seen in the past. And also, I think people that are motivated to help make a change and help break the stigma. And so I'm just curious what you, what you would say to people that are listening to this of how, how they can take the information that you've put forth and what they can do to get involved to either bring forth, bring forth this important information or to remove the stigma. I mean, what would you, how, do we, how do we fix it? How do we help? Oh, bless you. Well, I think that I think that language is everything. How we present ourselves and tell our stories to one another is, you know, what makes us human and always has made us human, you know, back to when we were cave people. So I think that how you present yourself um, in language, to start with language, I'm a person in long-term recovery. And for me, that means I haven't had a drink for seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, is very different than, hello, my name is Anna, I'm an alcoholic, very different language. So we yeah. begin with language and we begin with sharing our, our stories and sharing our hearts and not doing what my mother's generation did, which was to shame and blame, yeah. to keep it quiet. I, I do believe our secrets keep us sick mm-hmm. and I believe that it's incumbent upon all of us and I'm going to say in the next five years, because I would like to see it, things change radically quite quickly. I, I think we are in a wonderful period of time. And you referenced the Washington um, gathering, and that was so powerful and so important. And I think that we are, it is in the zeitgeist right now. I think mental health has paved the way to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think our time has come. And I think our time is here. And I think it's time to start talking about recovery in terms of um, as, as the focal point rather than addiction. I think how you live in recovery and how we all deal with the complexities of this universe are, are subjects to be shared. So I think the more um, united the voice, the more united we can be 
um, in and almost having a series of town hall meetings um, and continuing to just share our stories, the better. Yeah. I love it. You know, you have, you have referenced Washington. That was very important. You know, I think the United to um, the United movement, the faces of and voices of recovery movement. These are really pivotal. Yeah. Yeah. I know you almost don't realize, or we don't realize, we were there and we were thinking, this is bigger than we think. Yeah, you know, know. We aren't really grasping what's happening right now, but this is big. This is really big. Yeah. So I think it is. And I think it used to be just hived off in rehabs and treatment centers and people scuttled away and then scuttled back to their life. Even myself, very embarrassed and very ashamed. And there, there's something very different if you... I mean, you two are doing it. You square your shoulders and decide to speak up. The world does not end. In fact, the world begins. <laughs> the world opens when you begin to tell your own story and others yes. come forward. Not a day passes without my hearing from a reader around the world who uh-huh. says, your book changed my life. Your book tells my story. Your book helped me. And each and every time, it, it is a pleasure. So, I just believe in communication. I think it's all we have. Yeah. I love it. Well said. Okay, Laura, you can wrap it now. Okay. Sorry. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Anne. I love spending time on the phone with you and we're lucky to have you and your work. It's such an honor. It's such an honor. Yeah. Your work is very Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really loved it. Oh, good. Good. Okay. And I'll be in touch about when it's going to go up and all that. So thank you. Perfect. And do keep in touch. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.